Good morning. Welcome back to some of you. Glad that you could be here with us this morning. Glad you could join us and that I could join you to worship our Lord Jesus. I want to ask, have you ever had an experience that you have struggled to put into words? Give me some nods if you've been there. Yeah, lots of nods. That's good. Yeah, there's lots of moments like that. And we can, I, I immediately think of the big ones. Like, how do you describe the feeling as a man when you see your wife walking down the aisle, the woman who's about to be your wife? How do you describe that feeling? I don't know how you describe that. How do you describe the birth of a child, right? Um, but there's, there's stuff that's more, that isn't the huge stuff. I was thinking about this the other day, and I thought, how do you describe the feeling of, of being in the flow, do you know what I'm talking about? I hope you know what I mean when I say that, of being in the zone, right? We use these, these words, in the flow, in the zone, to describe an experience that is actually very hard to explain. And if you don't know what I'm talking about as I say, in the zone, I wrote a little paragraph here, and I don't know if it does it justice. It's like being totally focused on something, but not taking any effort to focus. And it's kind of like you're in a river that's carrying you off, but it's going right where you want to go. So you're in control and out of control at the same time. And you stop sensing the movement of time. You can skip meals and you don't even realize it. Um, and it's, this, it's a satisfying experience, but it, you can't decide when you're going to have it. You can't just sit down and say, okay, in the zone now, I wish. I wish you could do that. And all of this still doesn't contain what it's like to get swept up in some joy, some task, some work before you. Um, and we have experiences like this, I don't think all the time, but often enough that we know it's hard to put a lot of life into words. And I start with this kind of description because today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture which is attempting to describe for us one of those experiences. One of those experiences that just, they stretch the bounds of boundaries of language until they break. There's no way to put into words what the disciples experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the passage we're going to look at today, Jesus' Transfiguration in Matthew 17. And what's ironic about this is that the biblical writers, the Matthew and the other authors who write about this, and myself as a preacher, have no choice but to do our best with words to describe an experience that words cannot do justice to. And so, um, like I say, I'm going to do my best. And we're going to walk through this in three parts. Not three points, three parts. We've got a three-part sermon today. Look, listen, and feel. We're going to do look first. We're going to talk about what is seen in this passage, what is described that is visible to the eye. And then we're going to do listen, and we'll talk about the words that are spoken and what we can hear in this passage. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about feel and what is felt here, and what the invitation is to us in terms of feeling. And so that's where we're headed. We're going to start with reading the passage. We're in Matthew chapter 17. We're reading verses 1 to 8. And I'm going to ask you to please stand with me. <coughs> and I think I have control of this, right? Awesome. <laughs> Not that you don't do a great job. You do. But I have slides after the verses, so might as well start now. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. 
His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. (coughs) Excuse me. So let's look together. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. This is Mount Tabor, the traditional location of the Transfiguration, though there's no way for us to know that. And we can, I want to ask you to look with the eyes of your imagination. We can look as Jesus, who often heads off into the wilderness and mountains to pray, on this occasion invites three of his closest friends to join him. They start out in the valleys in the greens and some of the browns of Israel's arid mountains. We can imagine the low trees and the green bushes, and we can watch as we head up the mountain, and they thin out. They turn into the brushlands of many of the mountains and hills of Israel. We can imagine John and James and Peter, Peter the older of the three, his beard and his hair streaked with gray, sweat running down his muscled forearms and his robes whipping in the mountain winds. We can look at John and James, younger, brothers, perhaps clean-shaven, with more energy than Peter but less boldness taking up the rear. And you can see on their faces the confused wonder. They know Jesus has often gone into the wilderness to pray. They've seen him disappear from among them, even from among the thickest and most pressing crowds, only to appear later, the next day perhaps, walking out of the wilderness or down to the seashore or across the sea. But he's never slipped away and taken them with him. What does this mean? Why now? What is he going to show them? What special privilege is this to head with Jesus into the wilderness to pray? Well, we get to see the answers to these questions as well. For as we reach a place of rest, rounding a corner near the top of the mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. I wish I could see this. Words are not the only thing that strain to portray this moment. Art does as well. This is the earliest surviving artistic representation of the Transfiguration from the year 565 in St. Catherine's Monastery. You can see Moses over here and Elijah over here, and their fingers are held out in the sign of blessing to Jesus. On the ground, John and Peter and James, faces turned towards Jesus, hands out in wonder, knocked down by what they see. If we look closer at Jesus, we can see the artists are doing their best to portray the dazzling white robes and the face like the sun by placing the crossed halo behind his head and lining his robes with gold. The whole thing, the description given to us by Matthew, which is mirrored in this art, is full of meaning. 
God himself is described by the psalmist as being wrapped in light as with a garment. And Jesus describes the glory of the righteous ones in heaven as shining like the sun. Jesus' shining face recalls Moses' shining face when he descends from Mount Sinai. And his white garments anticipate the heavenly robes that we look forward to receiving upon Jesus' return. In this picture, Jesus is holding his fingers. This is a traditional artistic representation of Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Early Christian artists used it whenever God was in the picture because he is the beginning and the end. He's surrounded by what's called a mandorla, which is Italian for almond. It's overlapping blue circles of deepening darkness that's used to represent moments when the human and the divine meet and time is transcended. It's also used to represent the brightness of Jesus in the middle because there's no way you can paint light as bright as the sun. (laughs) So you put darkness around it to emphasize the brightness in the middle. And this whole event looks both backwards and forwards. Back to the Exodus, where Moses prepares for six days on Mount Sinai before God reveals himself on a journey in which Moses took three of his closest friends with him. And incidentally, the monastery of St. Catherine, where this art is located, is on Mount Sinai. So even the building and this piece of art looks forward and backwards. It looks forward to the revelation of St. John, of Jesus to John, in the book of Revelation, where we read that John sees Jesus as someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as the snow, and his eyes were blazing like fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth with a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And what we see as we look to Jesus in the moment of transfiguration, what is revealed to Peter and James and John and through them to us, is a deeper look at reality. For just one moment, for one brief, terrifying, glorious moment, we see Jesus as he really is. And it is incredibly rare to see behind the curtain at the full depth of reality. I'm going to read to you a quote from C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory. He's talking about our reality as individual human beings. He says, It may be possible for each of us to think too much of our own potential glory. It is hardly possible to think too often or too deeply about the glory of our neighbor. The Lord or The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily upon my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption such that if you met, that you meet now, if at all, only in a nightmare." All day long we are in some degree helping one another to each of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, with the awe and circumspection proper to them, that we ought to conduct all our dealings with one another. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. 
nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Lewis is writing about the fact that we look forward to either an eternity in the presence of God in which we are the righteous ones covered in the blood of the Lamb who shine like the sun or to eternity in hell, in darkness beyond our imagination, in separation from God. That those are the two places, one or the other, that every person we meet is heading towards. And that reality is usually hidden from us. It is much more true of Jesus than it is of each of us, that while he walked on earth, the reality of his glory was mostly hidden. He looked to everyone around him like a, like a human being, and he was. He was fully human. What they didn't see, not often, was that he was also fully God. And it's that we catch a glimpse of on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's that that the artist is straining to represent in pictures like this one. It's precisely at this point, though, when we're given this glimpse of Jesus in his glory, that we have to remember that the story keeps moving forward. And this same Jesus, who's transfigured on the mountain, is executed on the cross. After this story, Jesus comes down from the mountain and heads towards Jerusalem. The very light of the world descends to Calvary, where he dies in the heart of darkness. And that is why we are given this glimpse of who he truly is, so that we know who it is that goes to the cross for us, so that we understand that the cross, too, is a moment of revelation of the glory of God. And so that we know, no matter how deep the darkness, no matter how lost the day, when the light of God enters the darkness, the darkness flees. And into this revelation, into this moment, Peter loses his ability to look and keep silent. He begins to speak. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But whatever Peter was about to say, he doesn't get to finish because while he's still speaking, a bright cloud covers them. And so covered in the bright cloud, they lose their ability to look. And so do we. For the cloud of the presence of God is upon them. And now it is time to listen. Sorry. Dan, can you turn on the wireless mic? <laughs> this is my son, who I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And as we listen, we hear familiar words. These are exactly the same words spoken over Jesus when he was baptized. But these words are now directed to us and end with a command. God the Father affirms Jesus' identity as both messianic king and suffering servant. And that's what this statement from God the Father is doing. The words of God over Jesus are a combination of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, which point to these two roles he plays, his glorious kingship and his suffering servitude. And so we listen also to the words of Psalm 2, the first psalm of messianic kingship. 
which is quoted here. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of earth. Serve the Lord you fear. Sorry, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And we listen also to the words of Isaiah 42, the beginning of the songs of the suffering servant of the Lord who bears our griefs and is wounded for our transgressions. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. And these two passages combine those two moments, those two realities of Jesus, the, the glorious Lord and King, the suffering victim on the cross. And just as the imagery of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration must be held next to the cross, so the words of God the Father over God the Son hold those same two moments together. And the whole narrative of Matthew holds those moments together. For if we listen to what goes on just before the disciples are on the Mount of Transfiguration, we find that Jesus speaks of this very journey, the journey to the cross, right before going up and right after coming down from the mountain. So before the transfiguration, we hear Jesus say to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. And after, having seen Elijah, they begin to talk about Elijah, and Jesus says this. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And it's with these two things being in conjunction, the glorious Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus fully God and fully man, with Jesus, a sign above his head, King of the Jews, nailed to the cross, the flesh of his back hanging in strips and blood pouring down his face from the crown of thorns. With that in mind, we hear the words, the commanding words of the Father, listen to him. But if we're honest, it's that very conjunction, it's those two things that seem so impossibly far apart, the Lord of glory and the slaughtered lamb, that seem to end our ability to listen. How do you listen to that? How does that make any sense at all? And just as moments before in Peter's speaking, the cloud descended and the looking stops, so in this moment, as the words of God the Father, Father echo across the mountaintop, the disciples fall face down to the ground and are overwhelmed with fear 
and I think their listening stops as well. And now it is time to feel. Now I've tried in these first two sections to walk through each part in a way that engages the senses that I'm focusing on. I don't usually use slides. I think this is the first time I've done that since I've been here at Timbers. But it helps us to have something to look at. And having more, multiple voices perks up the ear so that we have things to listen to. There's no way to make us feel. Um, and I don't really want to manipulate emotions even if there was. <laughs> I hope when I preach that we feel the things preached about. But I hope this not because I want to make something happen, but because when I have the privilege of preaching on hope, I want you to feel the hope that God gives from His Spirit. When I have the privilege of preaching on sorrow, I want you to recall what it is to grieve. And we are meant in this passage as we walk through the transfiguration to experience both grief and hope. Grief over the fact that it is our sin that nails Jesus to the cross, that requires his death. Grief that the Lord of glory had to descend into infernal darkness, that the triumph of the Messiah had to take place on the cross. We're also meant to experience hope, hope that it is the Lord of glory, the light of the world who enters into that darkness on our behalf, hope in his coming victory and from the pers our perspective, because we're not on the mountain of transfiguration, in his victory already accomplished. <coughs> Hope because we all know what happens when light enters into the darkness. The darkness flees. We're also meant to experience the distance between the terrifying voice of God the Father and the presence of Jesus. Not, let me be clear, because the Father is scary and Jesus is nice. <laughs> but because we're told in Scripture that the voice of God as God, so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, whoever, like they speak as one, the voice of God strikes like lightning, strips the forests bare, that the unmediated presence of God is too much for us to bear, that no one can be in His presence, can look on His face and live. And so there's a distance between the glory of God in the cloud, which is as close as anybody in Scripture gets to the unmediated presence of God. When God comes to Moses, he's in the cloud. When God comes to the disciples in this moment, he's in the cloud. And he speaks, and the disciples fall face down in terror. And then the embodied, the incarnate presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Because note where the story ends. Jesus comes and restores to the disciples each of the things that they had lost in a sense, not that they'd actually fully lost them. So they see the transfiguration, they hear the words of God, and they fall face down in terror. And then Jesus comes beside them, and he places his hand upon them. Jesus came and touched them. Imagine the hand of someone you love upon your shoulder. Maybe you're sitting next to someone you love. Put your hand on their shoulder. Jesus came and touched them, the feeling of comfort. And then he speaks to them, get up, don't be afraid. They go from feeling to listening again, words of comfort. And then they look up, they see no one except Jesus. 
Jesus their friend, Jesus their rabbi, their Lord and master, who they've known for years, who's called them friends, who's lifted them up as they've fallen, who's walked with them and comforted them and does so again. Jesus, God the Son, who shines with glory, who dies on the cross, the one to whom we must listen, is also the one who reaches out to us in our terror, lifts us up when we're face down on the ground, speaks to us in our times of despair, and leads us onward even when we cannot see the way. And thus was Jesus transfigured before the disciples. Thus do we look, listen, and feel with them. And thus do we come together to the table of our Lord Jesus for one more time of looking, listening, and feeling. So look with me upon the table of our Lord. Look upon his body. You guys can hold on. <coughs> oh, Jesse and Sienna, you don't want to go up yet. No, that's okay. Look upon his body given for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. See that we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, upon Jesus, God the Son, the iniquity of, his, of us all. Look also upon his blood shed for us, and see upon it written the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah. He was wounded for, oh, sorry, the covenant that is not like the old covenant, but is a law put in our minds and written on our hearts, that God will be our God, and we will be his people, and he will forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more. Listen to the words of Paul given to the church for just this occasion. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And having looked and listened, we now invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper, to take part in this as an act of feeling, both of the physical sensation of taking part in the cup and the bread, but also in an act of faith, that when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we believe that Jesus himself is present, real time, right now, his hand upon our shoulders speaking words of comfort and truth as he ministers to us. May the Lord make this truer today than we see with our eyes and we hear with our ears. And may our hearts be open to the reality of who he is, of what he has done, and of his presence here today. So let's pray. <coughs> Lord Jesus, I thank you for revealing to us who you are on that mountain thousands of years ago and today at your table. And I pray that you would. God, I pray that we would hear your voice 
and experience awe and terror in, in just how amazing and great you are. I pray that we would also experience your love and your grace and your comfort and the forgiveness of sins. Lord, many of us come to this table burdened, perhaps with shame or guilt. Lord, you have taken upon us, upon you, our iniquities. May we experience that freedom today and each day may we walk in the power of your spirit. Lead us and guide us. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.